Welcome to the Boardrooms Best, the podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of the BoardBench Companies, and I'm your host here today at the Boardrooms Best. My guest here today is Mark Hirschberg. We do know each other through various groups that we belong to, uh, one of which is Renaissance. And those of you who don't know about the secret Renaissance, we'll have to leave that for another another conversation. But that said, Mark is a, is a friend and a colleague. And Mark's expertise is really the younger, earlier stage companies who are raising capital, looking to go public or sell out their great venture to uh, the high rollers. And today we're going to talk about what goes right, what can maybe go wrong, some of the snafus along the way, and what business owners can actually do about it. And quite frankly, also what the venture capital and the investor market can do about it too. So welcome, Mark. Thank you for joining me here today on The Boardroom's Best. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Mark, we had talked the other day about earlier stage companies, and I've seen this with friends and people that I just know over the course who have started some really amazing companies and for one reason or another have just lost control of them. Uh, They bring in the outside investors. They think they're gods. And then all of a sudden, they lose control of their idea, their business, and they become disheartened. Let's talk a little bit about that and your experience and, and what a young company and a young founder, not necessarily in age, but in age of the company, needs to first think about before they build out their boards. I would equate building a company to love in that when you begin a new relationship, you have that excitement and that passion and you think everything is roses. And at the time it is. Of course, every entrepreneur is in love with their ideas, right? And even though you might be eating ramen noodles in your parents' basement, <laughs> the sexiness of the startup is just a, a great draw. Or if you're Elon Musk, or Elon Musk and you're actually sleeping on the middle of their production floor, maybe... The sexiness <laughs> is back. It's whatever, whatever makes the marriage work. <laughs> but just like a marriage you need to recognize there will be high points and low points. And just as when you go into a marriage, you should do so with a discussion about what happens during the good times, but what happens during the bad times. And think about the prenup for understanding about what you will do in cases of bad times. So too, when you enter a relationship with your investor, you need to understand the good times and the bad times and plan for them both. And everyone thinks about the good times. Everyone talks about, here's the investment and here's what's going to happen when we're sold for a billion dollars. For most companies, that's not the outcome. And you have to understand what the expectations are when that is not the path you take. That's a kind of scary discussion to really have from the beginning because, I mean, let's face it, every entrepreneur, business owner, CEO, founder, whatever you want to sort of label you want to give them, really is... They're in, they're in the dating phase, really, when you think about it, from the investor market. And then having those discussions about what happens when it's not so pretty and uncomfortable. Just like like you said, a marriage. It's, it's hard even to sometimes tell your spouse that, honey, I blew up the kitchen. Or <laughs> guess what? The house burned down and you're not coming home to anything. So we're living in Motel 6. 
I mean, how do you really sort of bridge that? And what kind of respect does the investor have for that kind of conversation? It honestly depends on the investor. There are some investors who want to hear nothing but optimism. And it's it comes from their personal bias of, as a founder, you just have to always be optimistic. You have to say, I'm going to win at any cost. And suggesting that there might be anything else that can happen, they see that almost as a sign of weakness. So they get skittish. Yes. They want to see that you are 110% committed, and you're going to make this work no matter what. And if you do try having these discussions, it may indeed scare them off. But that may not be the right investor for you, correct? I would tend to think so. Myself, I prefer investors who, anyone who's been around the block knows not every investment works out, and there will be problems. Now, you don't want to think about what happens when this whole thing blows up and goes to zero. But realistically, every startup I've been a part of and most that I've heard of, you've had something happen, whether it's a macroeconomic event like the dot-com crash, mm. or we had the Great Recession, or even something within industry, or whether it's a micro event such as your head of sales leaves to go start something else with his college buddy and takes half your sales team with him. Or half your client base as well, right? And half your client base as well. (laughs) Seen that. Things will happen, and it's going to throw off the best laid plans. So being prepared and having a partner who can work with you and say, all right, we have a setback, now let's get through this, and won't simply be on you and say, this is not what you promised me when I gave you the check. That's what I look for in an investor. I think that's something important to have that discussion with an investor who's open to it. So that investor, I guess, depending upon how much they're putting in, does not always require a seat at the table from a board perspective. Yet there are so many young companies that are out there that are, I don't want to say clueless about building a board, but a little naive and think that for every dollar you give out, you give a seat. How do you tell an investor who's put in money. Cheese Joe or Sally, it's really great that we have your cash. We're going to take real good care of you. You're going to make a lot of money with us or not. But you don't necessarily have a say at the table. That's a little trickier. Sure. And I think this is another reason why you want sophisticated, experienced investors. Those who have been around the block, those who know how this works, understands that a quarter of a million dollar check might not get you a seat on the board. But new investors think, quarter of a million, that's, that's a lot of money. I want to watch my investment. Especially if it's your first dollar in. Exactly. Or first quarter million in. Exactly. They, they think, I'm taking a significant stake. But when you look at the long term, and this is a discussion to have with them, how many board seats do you expect to have by the end? And at what stages do they come in? And you expect so many to come in at the A round, at the B round, at the C, and probably D. And when you have this discussion, you can say to the person who's giving you that hundred, $250,000 check, look, if I give you a seat, then all these other people get a seat and suddenly my board is going to be 30 people. And that's just not, you can't have a board, certainly for a startup. It's like people. a not-for-profit board versus, you know, who can write the check as opposed to who can really contribute. So now you've got your first investor. You've built a board of well, typically it happens a lot of friends and family in the early stage companies, whether they put money in or not, but they are there to guide you, in along, uh, guide you along the way. Now you get to sort of a different level. It's building out that board that's also going to attract the right investor is key. 
because now you've got to fire mom, dad, and your sister on the board or your uncle or your neighbor and bring in the guys with the really big bucks. Presumably, you have probably given, as I've seen in many cases, some piece of the business away. When does that get out of control? What do you do about reining it in? Or is it too late once you've been given away pieces of the company? Again, it's important to set expectations from the start about not just what's happening at this moment in time, but what will happen down the road at the next investment stage and the one after that and where they're likely to wind up. You're right that when you take in that friends and family, you're poor, no one's really talking to you, and so these are your your closest friends, not just because they are your friends, but because their people just gave you money and they'll take your calls and they're excited for your business too. And equity is seductive. Yes, and it's it's exciting for people to say, oh, I'm invested in a startup. Most of the friends and family folks are ones who don't normally go out and invest, as opposed to a VC who sees this as an everyday activity. And so when these folks join, they get very enamored by it. But saying the expectation of, I'm going to outgrow you at some point, and I'm going to spend more time with my grown-up VC friends, but this will make your equity stake more valuable. And certainly you don't close the door on these folks. They're always there. If they're good, they will always continue to support you. Even when I've done early-stage angel investments of tiny amounts, and now we're at the point of raising millions of dollars, I'm still there helping the company. My dollars aren't making a significant contribution at this point. They're long since spent. But my connections can certainly help, and I'm quite happy to do that. You're the, what I would call, um, the empathetic investor who really understands the pain and suffering of that early-stage company that needs more than just the money, but truly the, the vast network that are going to be needed to be pulled in at certain stages along the way, including the little hairy, audacious environments, whether you need the attorney, whether you need somebody to bail you out in a bad manufacturing deal that's gone awry in China or someplace else in the world, to a rogue employee. So I think uh, what what I see is there are great investors, but their networks in certain areas are not always as strong for a particular company as they need to be. One of the things I've seen lately is companies who get excited about their network of outsourced vendors that they need. So you don't bring in the person to actually do the execution, you hire the vendor to do it. Being that they're strapped for cash, they will negotiate equity in the business. And one particular case that I, I recently heard about is I had a question about it. Um, and I've, I've, I recently just had a conversation with another friend who did this and it worked out well. But is it really a good idea to give away equity in a business, especially when you don't know where that is going to end up? I always caution companies against that. Equity is designed for long-term partnerships. We give equity to the people we hire and it vests over four years because we expect them to be there for the long haul. We give equity to our investors who have themselves committed and we expect them to be there over the long haul. So when you give equity to a vendor, you need to ask yourself, is this a long-term partner or are they just providing a short-term service? For example, uh, the two most common places I see it are for software engineering Oh, yes. And for typically some type of marketing or PR service. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, if someone is just building you an application and hands it off to you and you give them equity, okay, great, you save some cash and now you've got your software. 
But what happens when that software needs more work? And it will need more work. It always does. Exactly. In fact, even that first version, you might find it's not exactly the right product market fit. And so it needs some revision. Now, is that company going to say, hey, we're we're here with you? Or are they going to say, well, you know, sorry, it didn't work out. I did what you said. Give me more equity for the next chunk. Or that particular vendor may not have the strength or capability to actually execute on taking that piece of software to the next the next round or the next level of um, sophistication that you need, correct? Very true. And now their incentive should be in line with yours, which is building the company, building the software, getting to the next level, but they might not be capable. And now you have this equity partner who's not delivering any additional value, but the equity's out the door. You're not getting that back. And who owns what in the long run, right? Now that they've created the, the software tool or the product, do you own it or do they own it, whether they own a piece of the company or not? It should be usually in those cases, you do own the software. That's what you paid for, that you have a okay. license. Although in some cases, an inexperienced entrepreneur might not get an exclusive license, mm. allowing the vendor to resell that to potential competitors in the future. So now you own a piece of, um, let's say, a, a patent, but you don't own the patent portfolio around it. So now that you are created a different level of vulnerability, and then you can also lose your relationship with your venture capital or your investors because they say, wait a second, you own this, but the greater value isn't protecting that thing, whatever that be. Great. So caution against giving equity to vendors. You just can't print more stock in your company like some people think you can do not not easily and not without some significant consequences it's and not it's not fort knox <laughs> and and once you've got some serious investors on board once you have the professional investors they're going to nix just printing more equity because of dilution that it gives them Let's explain to some folks who might be listening that may not necessarily understand about dilution in uh, in equity. So you come in and round, you know, A, and then what happens? Sure. So I create a company and I own 100% of the company. And let's say this company I value at $2 million. And I convince you it's worth $2 million. You like the business. You want to come in. I need $2 million more dollars. So you come in for a $2 million investment. So what just happened? Well, when we add your $2 million to my $2 million, the total value is four. The $2 million that the business is worth plus a $2 million cash in the bank that you put in. I used to own 100% right before this transaction. Now I contribute 50% to the pool, as did you. So we each own 50%. My net worth right before and after has not changed. I went from 100% of $2 million to 50% of $4 million hasn't changed my net worth, but now it's a bigger pie. And the belief is that using your $2 million, I can now turn this into a $10 million company. And I will get $5 million of that, making my $2 million more valuable. So now we're 50-50 partners. When we do the next round, we build the company, thanks to your network and dollars and my hard work. The customers are piling in. They can't get enough of you. You're selling ice to Eskimos, and they love it. We're living the dream, and now we're worth $10 million but we need more capital. So we go out and we ask for another 5 million. So at this point, our pre-money value is 10 million and another investor comes along with an additional $5 million. So before, we're each worth 10, we're worth 10 together. 50-50. 50-50, so five each. This person comes in. So after this round, the total value will be worth 15 million, of which we had 50%. Each of us had 50% of the two-thirds and this other person has 100% of the one-third, $5 million cash. They'll own a third of the company, and our 50-50 of two-thirds gives us each one-third. 
And so now I went from initially owning 100% to 50%. To then one-third of the company. To now one-third of the company. And at this point, well, one-third of 15 million, 5 million, I'm doing well financially. But something important just happened. I am no longer a majority shareholder. Whoops. For the owner-founder, that hurts. That's right. And at this point, if you and the other investor are not happy with my performance, you can indeed remove me. There might be clauses in my contract helping to protect me from just an arbitrary removal, but any sophisticated investor will allow for some way to remove me if I'm no longer performing and continuing to grow the business. I have lost uh, my seat at the table. I'm no longer CEO, right? Yet I still have one third of the business. But there are situations where you can lose every percentage of your business as a CEO. And we've both seen it. That hurts more than anything. Sure. It's not that someone can make you an offer you can't refuse, but they can put you in a situation where you have limited choices. And what has happened, even to some CEOs I know, is the investors and really the board wants to take the company in a certain direction that the CEO might not be as excited about. And the board will get an opportunity, for example, a buyout of some of the equity. It usually comes along with an investment. There's a great investor who can help take the company to the next level, but one of the conditions is they want to buy out some early equity holders Mm -hmm. who might be founders, who might be early stage investors. And while they can't force a sale, the company itself might be in a position where it doesn't have many other growth options. And so they want to do the sale. For a full sale, there's when, when you're doing a, um, an actual exit sale, uh, there's a term called drag-along rights, which says mm-hmm. if you and everyone else, you all agree to sale, there's a majority, my shares are basically pulled along with it and sold, even over You my have no choice, that's it. But as the old adage goes, it's better to have a percentage of something than 100% of nothing. Absolutely. And that's why when you start out with 100%, you start diluting yourself to get that network, to get that investment and make the pie bigger. The entrepreneur has now gone through A, B, and C rounds. They're maybe at the next stage, they want to go public. You've got a boatload of investors on your board. And... You're not so sure that the strength in the boardroom is there to really take the, the company public because it's not just how much cash they put in the table, but really it's there's, sales, there's salesmanship in that IPO. I mean, who's really going to take the company forward thereafter? It's interesting to see that, and I've seen this and I'm sure you've seen this as, as well, that now you take the company public or you're about to get there. You've got a new group of people. It's critical to make sure that, one, you have the right new board members to go through that process. Even more important that now that you're public, you have the right people on there to build from that point on because it's a different animal now. How difficult do you see it for the entrepreneur founder who goes through that IPO process to really make that transition to the public mindset? And this is something that happens at every level. And the board sometimes too. It just doesn't know. It's, it's time to change horses sometimes. Very true. You need at every level the people you bring on to help you get to that next level. So when you take, for example, your A-round investors at the start, you need to take people who are not just giving you cash, but can help open the doors to those key sales you need to grow your revenues and who can help you source B-round investors Mm -hmm. and so on and so on up to you get towards the IPO. 
And at that point, it's true for both an IPO or an equity buyout. We will often see sometime after a D or E round, a small bridge round where investors come in and they're providing two key things to the company. The first is just a level of cash, just to make the financials look a little better and more appealing for that IPO. It's a salesman's job. It's packaging up in the right bow, right? Exactly. It's making it look pretty. And the second piece, as you note, is getting experienced board members who have been through an IPO process who understand how to work with the bankers, Mm -hmm. who understand how to work with the markets, and can help smooth that transition. And then, post-IPO, can help understand how you now need to operate in what's now effectively a regulated company as you're now public. I have seen a number of companies use the Job Act and and do these sort of the small micro IPOs where they don't necessarily have to be required to deal the full listing requirements. They have a certain amount of time. But making that transition up to that higher level is very difficult. In fact, there was one company not too long ago who we, we had this conversation. It was a bit of a battle with the, the CEO and a board member. And they were a pink sheet. This was a pink sheet company. And they said, well, we're a public company. I said, yeah, but you know, technically, yes, but no. And they just didn't get it. Finally, you know, the, the comment was because they couldn't get the outside investor that they wouldn't. They weren't having the visibility in the market. They didn't have the representation that they needed. They thought they did. They didn't know how to do it properly. And it was struggling just to get that next dollar in. The customer was okay, but, you know, there's some other issues and they wanted to buy and acquire some other companies. Quite frankly, you know, the best solution for them would have really to just be a private company and stay a private company. They had more value in doing so. In that particular case... How often do you see that CEO, founder become, I would say, they fall in love with themselves in the idea of the IPO market? I've seen a handful of companies go through pink sheet listings or go through pipes or yeah. other techniques to, to quietly... Reverse IPOs. Reverse IPOs, exactly, to get themselves into the public market. For tech companies, for software tech companies that I tend to do, I have never seen that work as the right strategy. With software, what gets people excited is some type of software that then gets momentum and increasing sales, and and really it's the momentum that people buy into, no matter which vertical they're in. The places where I do see... The momentum of not the technology and the the aura of the technology, but the momentum of the customer acquisition. Momentum of the sales, exactly. (laughs) Let's clarify that. The old Drucker rule was, um, as Peter Drucker said years back, in fact, we wrote an article about this, and the the fascinating story, uh, just we must have pulled 25 or 30 business people to say, what is the purpose of a business? And we got all sorts of stories and philosophy around it. And ultimately, we were looking at the quest, at the response being the purpose of a business is to acquire and retain customers at a profit. Simple. Exactly. Only one person got it. <laughs> Thankfully, somebody who had been a CEO <laughs> of a public company. And actually, a lot of tech founders don't necessarily get that. They it's think, all about the burn, right? Exactly. It's about the burn. It's about the excitement. It's about the PR. But you need to acquire new customers and ultimately make money. And you have no business otherwise. Business. Right. Yeah. And for many years, the profitability piece is less important. And that's understandable in that... Uh, Amazon. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even post-IPO, it can be non-profitable because you show folks that you are gaining new customers at least and then you have a model that says at a certain point we will become profitable and it's a story that people can understand well, there's a demand into. for your product yes 
And so we can see with software, and this is especially true for consumer software, when we look at companies like Snap, that consumers understand and get excited about going into a public market is great, but they still want to see the growth numbers. And when they don't, as we've seen with companies like Twitter, Mm-hmm. you start to run into trouble. When you're doing this type of pink sheet or other attempt, you're just not going to have, you certainly don't have the household name, and then you're just not going to have the ability to get your message out to get people excited to want to buy. You probably also don't have the resources to really keep messaging even when you do have wins. The only places I see this happen regularly is in biotech, in which case it is usually a much more binary long shot outcome. When you're building software, I have a certain amount of software sales and hopefully with more money, I continue to grow it and it grows at a a reasonable pace or maybe a great pace or maybe not so reasonable pace. With biotech, you typically have a binary event when you're hitting some clinical trial Mm -hmm. and you either pass or you don't. And there's just, there's almost no middle ground. And so you just take investors and everyone who are sophisticated in that area buy into the hope. It's hope, and the risk is huge in that environment, but the outcome is also tremendous, not just from a customer perspective, but for the ideal scenario and saving lives and creating better quality of life for people around the world, ultimately, right? So it's, you know, I I don't know if you want to really push the biotech environment to say that it's socially responsible investing to some extent, but that borderline of making the world a better place for mankind is kind of on that edge there. So that's an interesting philosophical debate, which comes to, yes, medicine makes the world a better place, but we also see to recoup their investment, they need to sell it for a significant amount a of money. A trillion dollars from one injection. So you're going to die. Guess what? I don't have a trillion dollars. We, so see you later, Charlie. <laughs> we, we've certainly seen companies jack up prices and we've oh, seen the debates. EpiPen issue, right? Exactly, you know? about the costs. You could even make the argument that certain software makes the world a better place. Now, it's not as simple as, I just gave you a shot and cured cancer. But there are arguments about, well, if this saves everyone one minute of commute time, just think about how much time we gave back to people, to their families. Think about how much carbon dioxide we took out of the environment. And so in much more subtle ways... Software can actually have some social good, although that's certainly not necessarily the main selling point. Software and social good. No, that that's not something that people necessarily put the two together. Although IBM would certainly love to have you as their spokesperson. I certainly believe <laughs> I do a lot of cybersecurity. And what are we doing in cybersecurity? Oh, dear Lord, right. We're, We're making the world yeah. a safer place. That's true. That's true. Let's just take a quick sidestep on the whole cybersecurity issue since you brought it up. And... There's a whole lot going on in that environment right now. More importantly, you mentioned the biotech industry is even more importantly, the fear of, of this is from a consumer perspective predominantly, but it's also a corporate perspective because the cost to remediate goodwill from, from the consumer perspective ultimately is, is extraordinary when it comes to healthcare issues. How do you see companies really dealing with these concerns, especially from a board perspective? Because the, the board in general sends, tends to want to know about it, but the experts, not that you need the, the, you know, the god of cybersecurity on your board, but you need somebody who really understands enough to drill down and say, do we pull the plug or not? So what's happening in that environment, do you see? 
I think cybersecurity and boards, it's still dynamically playing out. And it's a very interesting scenario to watch. Not just a link and log and get your CTO and say, hey, you know, we got a seat for you. You're the expert. There you're in. Boards absolutely need to start paying attention to cybersecurity and need to have a security committee, just as your board will have a finance committee. They might have a HR retention committee. So specifically, it's a cybersecurity committee as opposed to just a risk committee, you're saying? It could fall under risk. And in fact, I'd argue that with cybersecurity, it dovetails into certainly physical security. It might be less common for it to impact or uh, correlate with other types of risks, such as financial risk. Sure. And so it, it depends on but the But it makeup. is a financial risk, ultimately. It, it's a right? financial risk, but it's, it's usually modeled very differently than other types of financial risk, where you're just looking at impact of typically macroeconomic events. Correct. So you, you might put under the risk committee, you might separate out depending on the makeup of that committee and the experience and what they're looking at. It certainly can't hurt to have multiple perspectives on a risk problem so you don't have as much groupthink. This is also a, a fairly um, complicated issue because dealing with cybersecurity pre-event is being offensive versus defensive. And not knowing how much to actually invest in this, in this kind of opportunity, opportunity loss uh, protection is something that I, I think a lot of management and boards are really concerned about, especially if you've got a company whose margins are fairly thin. And this is where it gets very interesting. We're seeing everyone's talking about cybersecurity insurance. Right. But it's not clear what those prices will be. And it's actually not clear to me what penalty companies actually pay for cybersecurity breaches. In the short term, yes, we see... Nine ninety nine to cover your, you know, your your security, but the healthcare reform or, or healthcare uh, actually getting access to your healthcare information is a whole nother scenario, and the fines are significantly higher. Which is, I mean, you and I know both. I think it was Aetna that had a breach uh, a couple of years, maybe a year or so ago. Their comment was, "Well, geez, they only got a hold of everybody's name, address, and social security number." And as a consumer, like. I'll be polite, holy cow. <laughs> what do you mean? But the cost for them to remediate that issue with, with their customer was $9.99 to cover you know, your security coverage for a year, plus their other outsides versus $10 million per customer when they actually gain access to the healthcare records. Sure. Now, I tell everyone who says my social security number was stolen not to worry your social security number was actually stolen years ago. You just didn't know about it. So it's not yeah, when really Yeah, when you it. were two years old, probably. It's certainly in the or last younger. 20 years or so. It's just not been as public, but it's already out there. So all that's happening is more out there, which actually makes you less of a... Uh, you're, you're now floating in a bigger pool, so you might actually be slightly just more secure. Just put a secure. lock on your credit. You should get uh, some type of extended credit protection. Uh, credit card companies, there's no reason they should not have effectively two-factor authentication, which they don't do. I have it set up so if anyone tries to open credit, they, including myself, they have to call me and confirm. And that's all protection everyone should have just as, as a standard. But returning to, uh, to the board level... Right. While there are direct financial penalties we can calculate, both the penalties from the government or the remediation, as you point out, nine ninety nine for credit protection. There's so much more. But this is where it's not clear. We've seen the stocks will take a hit. We'll see Home Depot or Sony. The stocks take a hit initially. Equifax. 
But long term, I have not seen significant long term impact from a hack. Now, I have not concretely studied this. I think it's important people should. Let's talk about that a little further. What do you mean by long-term impact from a hack? I mean, the company is imploded, or...? I mean, did you stop watching Sony movies after they got hacked? No, of course not. And I still have a Facebook account. And did you go into a store and say, well, I was going to buy a Sony stereo, but they got hacked, so I'm going to buy LG instead? No, and I'm still buying online from Best Buy. The end consumer has not changed their behavior. And to your point earlier, what's the purpose of a business? To sell products to customers. And they have continued to do so in the face of these hacks. In that sense, the long-term impact has been minimal. There's a short-term remediation cost. but the, And certainly a couple people, someone loses their job, usually the CISO, the Chief Information Security Office Officer, maybe a couple others or a board member. Somebody has to take a fall. Exactly. But long term, customers continue to buy and purchase and does not impact the company. Because you need the services or the access to the information that they've got? Right. Now, again, I haven't studied the companies and followed them pre and post, but I think someone should really look at these issues. (laughs) (laughs) You're not a finance guy. (laughs) Not not at the public level. Sure. Not a total quant. Yes. Yeah, not following the stocks on a daily basis. So, and we'll start to wrap up here. The interesting thing on that comment is it also relates to people's long-term and short-term memory. What happened yesterday is being supplemented by something else that's happening today. Whether it be politics, whether it be another breach, all of a sudden the one that happened before is not as bad as the one that's happening today. Very true. And it's, as a consumer, what do I actually do? Home Depot got breached well, what do I do? They're just telling me, don't worry, they'll buy me credit protection. There's no change for me to make. If we get a hack where someone has to make a physical change to their lifestyle, they have to replace equipment. If we find that, for example, a car company gets hacked and people are told you have to bring your car in, it's going to take a week to repair, they might remember that. That had a material impact on their lives. Oh, especially if they become a self-driving car, and now all of a sudden they're being taken to California instead of New York. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. So I think until the hack affects people on a daily personal level, it's not going to change their purchasing behavior, which is ultimately what the company is focused on. So from a board perspective, you just triggered a thought that When it comes to cybersecurity and these kinds of issues from a technological perspective, it's important to have a board that understands the impact. But maybe it's more important to have a board that understands the social sciences. I think as you focus on that risk to the point you raised, it's not just looking at what is the material cost, what is the remediation cost, or what's the cost of downtime to our servers, but what is the short-term and long-term impact, how will it change the perception of the product and how will it change the purchasing behavior of the end consumer? And ultimately, is it going to impact our long-term strategy? Exactly. Well, with that, Mark, I think that's a nice way to wrap things up. And I really want to say thank you so much for joining me here today. For those of you out there who are listening to this podcast, you are our guinea pigs or my guinea pig. This was my first live face-to-face podcast recording. So I am 
very pleased to have done this with Mark. He's a good friend. I hope you will consider him part of your board family sometime soon, too. Take care and have a great day. Thank you for joining us here at The Boardroom's Best. This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.